we need to, um, you know, be as candid and transparent about things that people like Jefferson did that were, uh, you know, wrong, not just mistakes, but but sinful in, in Christian categories, but not to use that observation of this person's flaws to tout our own virtue and morality, um, but instead to be humbled by, you know, what culture does to people that, the you know, that it corrupts. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you have been listening to the podcast for some time, or perhaps you are one of our faithful readers of Credo Magazine, then you know that from time to time, as much as we delve into theological matters, we also have an interest in American history, and not just any part of American history, but American religious history. We have looked in past issues at uh, a number of figures, uh, such as Jonathan Edwards, for example, or we've even looked at some of the uh, American influence from a figure like George Whitfield and so many others. But this raises uh, a difficult uh, matter, one that continues to be debated and one that is of special interest to any theologically minded person. What exactly are we to think of some of the founding fathers and the way that they articulate or engage with the Christian faith? how they understand Christian theology, and how did that influence uh, so many of the great contributions they made uh, to the beginnings of what we now call America. Well, this is not just a complex issue, but it brings us into contact with some of the most important historical figures, uh, individuals like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson is so fascinating because here we have uh, one of the most brilliant minds, but at the same time, we also have an individual who is engaging with Christianity in a way that is both uh, appreciative and praiseworthy, but at the same time, also critical. Uh, this reminds us that so many of these individuals, Jefferson included, um, they are actually operating within the uh, context of an Enlightenment influence, and we're trying to understand them in that context in a way that's faithful to how they thought of their own project, but also in a way that allows us to look into the ways their influence and their ideas then had a certain trajectory on both their own time and the church ever since. Of course, this raises a cluster of is issues that are extremely complicated, everything from the relationship between the church and the government, the developing government at the time, uh, as well as issues like uh, slavery and uh, what it means to be created equal and the evolution of that debate in the midst of so much turmoil. Uh, it also brings to the surface uh, 
certain controversial uh, developments such as the rise of a more rational Christianity and the debate that occurred over exactly how uh, orthodox that is or is not. Well, these are difficult issues to discuss, and the history behind them is not only fascinating, but actually very important for understanding our own origins. This is why I've asked a colleague and and friend Thomas Kidd to come on the Credo podcast uh, to talk to us about uh, Thomas Jefferson in particular, because he's written a biography called, uh, well, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Of course, many of you know uh Thomas Kidd from so many of his books. Uh, perhaps you've read his book, Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis. He's also written uh, a number of other uh, biographies, such as George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. I've also appreciated his book on Baptist called Baptist in America, A History with Barry Hankins. But we actually have a unique opportunity today because I not only have uh, Tommy Kidd here in the studio with me, who is a colleague of mine now at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he is a research professor in church history, but I also have in the studio Gary Stewart. Uh, Gary Stewart is associate professor of history at Colorado Christian University. Uh, Gary is a good friend, and he too is a historian on American religious life. In fact, he has a book out, uh, just came out recently, called Justifying Revolution, the American Clergy's Argument for Political Resistance, 1750 to 1776, published with Oxford University Press. Tommy, uh, Gary, it's great to have you right here in the studio with me. Thanks for having us. I think the place to begin is actually not with Jefferson. Uh, as much as I'm so eager to get into his life and discuss uh, who, he, who he was and, and the influence uh, he had on America, as well as how we think about Christianity. But before we get there, I think we need to maybe back up a, a minute and just discuss, uh, both of you are historians, and I know that you've encountered this before, how this question before, how exactly do we approach history in a way that avoids certain extremes? Uh, Tommy, I can't help but uh, think of the opening of your book. In fact, this is just in the introduction where you deal with this issue with Jefferson because Jefferson is a complicated figure. Um, you use the example uh, on the one hand of him writing uh, those famous words in the Declaration of Independence on the equality of, of all men. But at the same time, uh, he has, well, he's for the emancipation of slavery, but he also has slaves himself. And so this is uh, an individual who's, who's caught up in the context of his own time. Uh, at the very beginning, you, you back us up to say, well, how then do we even approach a historical figure like this? And you say, well, I would argue that Jefferson and the major founders remain valuable and even essential subjects of study in spite of their manifest flaws. Instead of renaming schools or toppling statues, I propose that we instead ponder perplexing hard truths about the American founding. And then you say something really profound. You say, time-bound Self-interested men framed the world's most enduring republic on the bedrock of the slave owner Jefferson's glorious principle that all men are created equal. These paradoxes warrant sober reflection and further study. We should steer clear of the excesses 
of either patriotic apologetics or iconoclastic destruction. The founders, including Jefferson, were hardly pristine saints, but maybe were not either. I, I, I read that and I thought that is very convicting, which raises a difficult question. Uh, what are the excesses that uh, we should be aware of that can be dangerous, especially when trying to be a faithful interpreter of history? And not only what are the excesses, but then how should we approach history or even historical figures in a way that's far more healthy? Well, I think that there are similar excesses on both the political and cultural left and right uh, in the sense that there are a lot of people, increasing numbers of people, especially in the social media realm, who come to history, the American past in particular, with a particular ideological agenda that drives uh, the interpretation sort of regardless of the evidence. Um, and, and that's just bad history kind of 101. I mean, uh, th th this is not the right way to start. Um, and, and so if you're uh, on, on the left these days, there tends to be this sort of cancel culture impulse where we say, well, if someone was a, a slave owner or something like that, then, then they should be dispensed with and, and you know, statues destroyed and that, that kind of thing. And then on on the right, you tend to have this the other extreme of a kind of civil religious approach where, you know, th somehow these people almost take on a kind of quasi-religious uh, role in your historical memory where you, you just can't stand the idea that they would be deeply problematic characters in, in uh, their own time and place. And so... The temptation and the worst excesses of that is to cover up or excuse or to act as if, you know, things did not happen. Mm. Um, uh, and, and both of those, I think, are wrongheaded approaches. Um, and since the cancel culture bit is, is a, kind of the most uh, current uh, version of this, I, I, I think that my view on flawed historical people, which is everyone who has ever lived except for <laughs> a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth. Uh, I mean, we need to, um, you know, be as candid and transparent about things that people like Jefferson did that were, uh, you know, wrong, not just mistakes, but, but sinful in, in Christian categories, but not to use that observation of this person's flaws to tout our own virtue and morality, um, but instead to be humbled by, you know, what culture does to people that, the, you know, that it corrupts. It, it, it gets you to do things that um, certainly in retrospect seem appalling and even evil, um, but that that we're also we also just have huge capacity for inconsistent behavior even in our own time um, and 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 so that especially the more power we have we seem to be prone to abusing that power for our own ends uh, which I think syncs up very well with reformed theological conclusions about the nature of humankind um, but but we should not criticize in order to tout you know, our own consistency, our own ethics, our own virtue, uh, but instead to be sobered and humbled by lessons that we learned from great people in the past like Jefferson. 
Gary, I, you know, you are a historian. Uh, has this issue come up in your teaching? Has this issue, uh, I mean, Tommy just shared a minute ago how this is even uh, pressing in our, the culture of our own day. How, how has this affected you as you've written history? Yeah, I think um, it's really important to be aware of our own psychological impulses that, that sometimes we approach history looking for a, a mentor figure, a father figure, someone who we can almost worship. And, and there's a tendency that some have to turn um, to want to idolize heroes you know, from the past. I do think we need heroes and examples that, that can help us and inspire us. Um, but at the same time, you know, there is no one perfect and, except for Christ. Uh, but there is an impulse, I think, that, that some have. Also, some have perhaps on the right a um, misplaced view of patriotism hmm. where there would be an impulse to to not want to say anything critical about any of the founding fathers um, of our nation uh, for fear that, that, that they be deemed less than patriotic or that they somehow um, are not loyal American citizens. Or they're capitulating, you know, to to the destructive forces of the left. So, I think re- recovering a kind of um, healthy patriotism that that is not blind to the obvious humanity of of the founding fathers is uh, is an important thing to do. So often, people think you have to choose between being critical or being appreciative, and I don't see any reason why we can't be both uh, un- under the broader banner of just being honest. And um, I'm just really happy with uh, what you've done, um, Tommy, with your biographies, with a kind of uh, critically appreciative approach to to the founding fathers of of our, our country. Yeah, you know, even in theology, I mean, both of you are uh, historians um, by discipline, but I I would just add to that, even in in systematic theology, uh, this is something I bump up against all the time, <laughs> mm. uh, whether it's writing and mm. publishing or whether it's teaching in the classroom, there are those assumptions. And I have to remind students, uh, well, you can have, you can utilize a type of critical appropriation uh, that is honest. Uh, we don't, there's no reason we have to pretend that uh, there are not flaws, but at the same time is humble. So uh, honest but humble, humble meaning uh, we are willing to learn from the past, uh, very much in the spirit of, you know, C.S. Lewis, who in his own day, right, warned us about a certain uh, chronological snobbery that uh, he saw and was very concerned to address. Now, maybe we should start off, since we've mentioned it already, and just address what for some listeners will be uh, a stumbling block or a barrier in their minds before we even get into the specifics of, say, Jefferson and Christianity. And that is, uh, Tommy, you even mentioned it a minute ago, the, the complex relationship between Jefferson and slavery, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, on the one hand, uh, here I have in front of me the Declaration of Independence, and uh, these words are words that, uh, you know, every, well, I hope every, uh, you know, young student Maybe it's junior high or high school. At some point, reads or maybe even memorizes, and we all know that famous line uh, that has been um, 
not just instrumental, but foundational for our country. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain uh, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as a theologian, and I do want to get to this later, uh, I can't help but notice right away this mention of uh, this phrase, endowed by their creator. And so Jefferson is certainly, as you point out, uh, Tommy, he is operating uh, not as, say, an atheist, um, though he there's a whole story there of how he is uh, engaging with the potential of atheism on the horizon. But put that aside, uh, he is operating within a context in which he is not necessarily an Orthodox Christian, as we would define it. But yet at the same time, uh, as we can see here in the Declaration, um, has a strong conviction and commitment to a type of theism that then comes out. Even um, Maybe we could even be so bold to even say there's an influence of uh, even just natural uh, theology or natural law as he is seeing that play out in not just the writing of the Declaration, but even in his understanding of society. Now that said... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming some of our listeners are familiar uh, just with the tension then in Jefferson's own life. On the one hand, he can be advocating for the emancipation of slavery in his own day. And at the same time, he has certain hesitations, as you point out, uh, hesitations about, well, what exactly is the plan? If there is freedom, um, he seems to be a bit suspicious as to whether uh, there can be coexistence between um, uh, whites and uh, Africans and whether this is actually uh, possible. And then we have his own life, right, in which uh, there's complications in terms of his own debt, but then along with that, complications in terms of how he is advocating for emancipation, but at the same time um, has slaves and uh, is interacting with slavery in a way that doesn't ultimately in his lifetime see it abolished. So, Tommy, talk to us uh, as a historian. How do we approach this? How complex is Jefferson? And um, what then would, might be some of the implications in your own mind uh, for understanding not just Jefferson, but the issue at large? Well, in some ways, Jefferson is representative of especially the Southern founding fathers, although people like Ben Franklin, a lot of people forget that Franklin owned slaves for much of his life, too. So it was very common among the founding fathers for people to own slaves. Um, and Jefferson owned hundreds of people as, as slaves um, throughout his, his life. And in that way, he's like Washington, Madison, Patrick Henry, people like that, who were just part of a, uh, a economic system that was deeply dependent on chattel slavery um, and for growing tobacco in particular in the Virginians case. And, and, um, and, and so he's very typical that way. Where he's not typical is the fact that most obviously he's the author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and so he articulates the most important principle of human equality um, in world history and so uh, it makes the the tension between his own uh, inextricable involvement with slave owning um, very conspicuous. Um, and he he also um, has a lot of power to do something about 
slavery, and he doesn't do much uh, about it. I mean, he he does, as you say, uh, from early on, uh, expresses uh, an ethical uh, opposition on kind of the categories of Christianity and the Enlightenment uh, against slavery. Um, but he doesn't do very much to to certainly curtail slavery in America. Now, it is true that he, as president, signs uh, the the ban on further importations of enslaved people uh, from from Africa and and, and wherever else in in the world. Um, but by that point, uh, the Virginians in particular had really more slaves than they knew what to do with, and so so that that wasn't exactly a a dramatic strike at the heart of of American slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also, as president, um, arranges for the Louisiana Purchase, which is going to be a key development in the expansion of of slavery. And I, and I think Jefferson would have seen it as having that purpose, mm-hmm. expand the amount of arable farmland uh, that the United States owned and, and that, that much of that land was going to be farmed by enslaved people. Um, and then there's the issue of Sally Hemings um, that that makes the, yeah. the problem of slavery with with Jefferson even more acute. Um, it, it's pretty well established, uh, though not universally accepted, that Jefferson had a long-standing sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, his uh, enslaved woman, um, one of his enslaved women, um, that probably bore uh, a number of children. Mm. Uh, and those children, for a time at least, w- went on to be more of Jefferson's slaves. Mm. Um, and, and so uh, that also was not that unusual. It, it, it appears in, in slave culture that masters would carry on uh, sexual relationships or, or uh, sexually abuse of female slaves. In fact, we, we think that Jefferson's wife was Sally Hemings' half-sister. Uh, in, the, in the sense that they had the same father, uh, Martha Jefferson's father was was also the father of, of Sally Hemings. So um, even in Jefferson's immediate family, the, there was more evidence of that that kind of relationship going on. But at, you know, at the end, you just you just think, how did this all make sense to somebody like Jefferson? How how could how could you live this way when you say you know slavery is wrong um, and you talk about Equality by our common creation by God, and yet, and yet you live this way. From a modern perspective, it just seems uh, absolutely inexplicable and uh, ethically intolerable, which which it is. But part of what I'm trying to do in the book is is to dig into some of the context, not to justify it all, but but to understand how this might have made sense to Jefferson. Yeah, I suppose this brings us to. Uh, a pivotal point. I, I remember in reading this uh, biography of Jefferson, coming to this exact point, in which I was, I was unaware, uh, but also quite surprised. But but then it, it all seemed to fall in place when I started to read about Jefferson's reaction to uh, Phyllis Wheatley, and it seems as if, and maybe this is a good transition for us. Uh, you know, what does Jefferson and his stance with slavery have to do with, uh, say, Jefferson's outlook on Christianity, because that too is a complicated relationship. Uh, but here in Phyllis Wheat, uh, Wheatley, we have uh, Jefferson 
uh, reacting quite negatively and very critically of her. Uh, here he is uh, not uh, he he is he is anything but flattering when it comes to uh, her poetry. But it's, at times it seems as if it's something beyond her poetry itself, right? Uh, on the one hand, she's African. But then she's also a Christian, or what we might even call an evangelical uh, at that. Tommy, tell us, why do these two worlds collide in Jefferson's mind so that, because some may look at it and think, why is Jefferson reacting so strongly uh, to her? But give us some background here. Why do these two worlds collide in one person with Phyllis Wheatley? Well, it's a a reference that he makes in Notes on the State of Virginia, which is the only full-length book that Jefferson ever published. And and he's reflecting on the cultural and racial differences between whites and blacks. Um, And he notes that um, some people uh, among whites who are doing this kind of ethnic racial study of African uh, black culture generally, that there are signs of... um, intellectual sophistication, and, and that, that would be marked by advances in arts and sciences. Um, and so some people, by that point, had, had Phyllis Wheatley starts publishing poetry in the early 1770s, and um, she had, had, was a slave, uh, came to some fame, uh, especially because of a, a poem she wrote on George Whitfield's death, and she was a great admirer of George Whitfield as an evangelist. And so Jefferson is is encountering her as an example that some people have cited of uh, African and African-American intellectual sophistication mm-hmm. and artistic sophistication. And he's utterly contemptuous of, of her poetry. Um, and and he, he just says it's, it's below the level of criticism. You can, it's, it's childish. It's, mm-hmm. it's pablum. Um, and, and I think that, that his singling her out is part of this bigger debate that some whites are having about the, the relative level of potential and sophistication for Africans and African-Americans. But it's also, uh, I, I think it, it does show this little glimpse of some um, rage, I think you would see about, you, you know, the accusation that, well, black people are fundamentally like whites in terms of this common racial created identity of humankind, and therefore slavery is, is wrong. And uh, you also see a little glimpse of his contempt for evangelical spirituality, oh. um, that it, it all kind of comes together in the person of Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, and he really does say, he not only uh, misspells her name, which, which I think is, just speaks to his contempt for her, yeah. but, but he just cannot stand the idea that people would regard her poetry as serious poetry. And that, that's, I think, where it's coming from. So this raises... Uh, another issue, right? Jefferson's uh, complicated interaction with Christianity, and maybe we should be more specific. And and you use the word evangelical at points, you know, evangelical Christianity. Uh, Jefferson is uh, a bit of a paradox at, at, at times, but but in his own mind, uh, he doesn't necessarily think of himself that way necessarily. Um, he, on the one hand, is very appreciative, and at times he praises Christianity. Uh, you think of his comments on Jesus, uh, Jesus, and even uh, the Sermon on the Mount or uh, Jesus' uh, teaching throughout the Gospels at large. 
uh, Jefferson uh, considers Jesus uh, exceptional and uh, in terms of his moral teaching, um, unrivaled. Uh, in fact, he even seems to hint at times that uh, the virtue that is embedded therein is indispensable for what Jefferson then wants, at least, to see in society. But then it's even beyond that. It's not just about Jesus. Uh, for Jefferson, uh, it goes beyond that with his understanding of the law of nature, uh, his understanding of a creator. Uh, this brings him into a uh, complicated relationship even with uh, the Bible itself, right? So that he is approaching the Bible uh, as an ancient history. And I'd love to hear more about this from you, Tommy, because, I mean, we think of just even Jefferson's library and his collection, uh, his lifelong obsession with uh, collecting books. Uh, he has a whole section in his library categorized as ancient history that is separate from religion. And you make the observation, a very astute one, that he puts the Bible in the section called ancient history rather than religion. And when he is writing uh, to others at, at, at times, he will make comments and say, well, uh, the Bible should be placed as ancient history be, because we should be reading it critically. And you even bring into the discussion the, the uh, historical critical method and how that's uh, being entertained at the time. But it's, it's even beyond that. Uh, some of this, uh, there's philosophical background, right? There's a philosophical t context with the Enlightenment because you have someone like David Hume, uh, who is quite critical of miracles uh, in Christianity, including the resurrection of Christ. And Jefferson at times is as well. Uh, that's no secret. Um, Tommy, talk to us about how we should understand Jefferson, because I imagine for some, this is also uh, one of those places where, where, where people feel divided. On the one hand, they are seeing uh, these great words in the Declaration, uh, which are in many ways uh, the DNA of, of Christianity, but then they will witness Jefferson turn around. And though he's not an atheist, um, he is uh, prescribing to what he will later, maybe for more political reasons, call a rational Christianity. What, what is happening here? And, and what is this complicated dynamic about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Jefferson is torn by uh, many factors here, including having grown up in uh, a conventionally but deeply Anglican environment and colonial Virginia. And so he knows the Bible very well from an early age. He knows the Book of Common Prayer very well uh, from an early age. And it, it leaves a deep imprint on him the way that it did for all the founding fathers. I mean, he he doesn't know the Bible as well as Ben Franklin does, but that's a pretty high standard because Fra <laughs> Franklin knows the whole Bible backwards and forwards, uh, having grown up in a Puritan family in New England. Um, but but uh, but Jefferson is deeply deeply not just conversant with but imprinted by the biblical Christian tradition. Yet he goes through, I think, a very skeptical phase. Not not atheist, but uh, I, th I think he thinks about atheism and the intellectual implications of atheism. But I, I think he spends some of his adult life not even uh, sure whether he's a Christian of any kind um, and, and sees Jesus 
always is a great moral teacher, but maybe not the greatest moral teacher. Um, he, he's enticed by the Epicurean philosophers yeah. of, of uh, ancient Greece, uh, for instance. And he, I think, wavers about how central Christianity should be to his own philosophy and also American society. Mm. But by the time he becomes president, I think he goes through uh, not a spiritual conversion experience, but a kind of intellectual conversion through his encounter with Unitarian Christianity, and especially the Unitarian minister and scientist, Joseph Priestley, uh, who helps to convince him that Jesus was the greatest moral teacher of all time, Um, especially because of Jesus's ethic of neighborly love, um, that, that he, he felt like the, the ancient Greek philosophers were um, preeminent on in the interior life, but that Jesus had an ethic of love. Uh, I think, you know, uh, the agape love ethic that, uh, that Jefferson came to believe was unparalleled in, in world history. So it, it is easy to get confused about Jefferson, especially by that point, because he uses deeply, profoundly theological language in the Declaration, mm. and it, it is it is not window dressing. It, it is profoundly important to Jefferson's argument. He could have put it in a less theological way: "All men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator." He had ways of saying that immediately available that were more generic, but he chose to be more directly theological. And then, after say about eighteen o two, he will say things like, "I am a Christian." But you also see when he says that, he usually qualifies it by saying, I, I mean, uh, being sincerely attached to Jesus's teachings and setting aside the question of his divinity. Mm. Um, and, and so you can see there that Jefferson feels like he's landed on a naturalistic, ethical version of Christianity, um, which is devoted to Jesus's ethics alone. Uh, and just not even in that case sort of denying, but just saying it is preposterous to even take up these issues about miracles and Jesus somehow being both God and man mm. um, in, in a kind of human fashion. He just he, he thinks that there is no good reason almost to even entertain those kind of claims. Uh, he thinks they're obviously imposed on Jesus by his later followers. Uh, and however the New Testament, you know, eventually came together. But he thinks that the New Testament, um, you know, does contain a fairly reliable record of Jesus's moral teachings. And so that when you uh, are, are taking out the the good from the New Testament and the Gospels in particular, he said when he was talking about his own version of the Gospels, the, the so-called Jefferson Bible, that it that picking out Jesus's ethical teachings is like, picking out diamonds from a dunghill, oh. uh, which was wonderful to say that the diamonds bit, but, but calling the rest of the Bible a dunghill is yeah. not very nice. Yeah. Um, so you can see that there's just tensions every which way with Jefferson's mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. So ha- having worked on Franklin and Jefferson, their religious life, would, would you see them as both occupying the same uh, theological religious space? Or do you see, do you see those, some key differences between Franklin and Jefferson? I think that um, they are very similar in the sense that they both um, effectively deny 
Fran Franklin's case directly deny the divinity of, of, of Christ and do not believe that the Bible is a wholly authoritative record. Um, it's, it's not a divinely inspired record to them. Um, there are differences. Um, some nuanced differences include that Franklin, um, he knows the text of the Bible better than any of the founding fathers. Madison is probably up there too, but for Franklin, it is it's it's just a familial having been in a family that was going to hear Puritan sermons twice a week for years and years and years. It was just ground into him. He says that he read the whole Bible by the time he was five, um, which with Franklin, I probably believe that's true. Um, He's so bookish. but I think Jefferson is is more of an advanced uh, sort of biblical studies expert for as a layperson uh, for his time, and 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 Jefferson's interest in um, the Bible, especially uh, the Greek New Testament and the Septuagint, um, continues all the way through Jefferson's life. Where I think Franklin. Um, is very interested in some theological debates in Philadelphia as a young man. But once Franklin becomes a diplomat, I think a lot of that sort of trails off. And he's left with the shadow, the legacy of Mm -hmm. of his Puritan upbringing, which is profound. Um, And both of them, you know, I mean, Franklin says that he's a deist. Um, Jefferson never, so far as I know, applies that term to himself. Um, But they're both skeptics about important parts of traditional Christianity, but they're both providentialists. Um, they're, so they're not the sort of radical deism that you see in some parts of especially English culture at the time. Um, they believe God's involved in human affairs. And certainly we'll talk about that uh, role for God in human affairs in, in political speech. So they're, they're not radical deists that, that way. So I, I think there are a lot of similarities, but some some of it probably just comes down to the difference between their personalities. I mean, Jefferson is just a more dogmatic person than Franklin is. Franklin, of course, famously is just very cheerful and doesn't really want to come down hard on anybody about you know any religious differences or anything. Where Jefferson will uh, stay very clearly what he thinks about (laughs) someone's, uh, idiocy about their evangelical convictions or something like that, where Franklin would never do that. I suppose this, this brings up the issue of deism, doesn't it? Because there's been debate in our own day, but, but this goes back, uh, even to, uh, Jefferson's day, you know, is he a deist? Is he not? Uh, it's, how do you answer that? If you search on Jefferson's papers, the the word deist or deism doesn't come up very much. Um, And uh, there is a contrast there with Franklin, who in his autobiography talks about how in his teens he became a thorough thorough deist. Hmm. That's a, a very notable difference between the two. When Jefferson talked about deism, he he tended to be more talking about uh, he thought Christianity itself was a form of deism because he thought the deism is the simple worship of the one true God. Um, and so he called Jesus a deist. Mm. Um, so it's kind of strange. I mean, <laughs> Jefferson didn't really call himself a deist, but he called Jesus a deist because he he said what Jesus was doing as a religious reformer was simplifying the 
kind of arcane, complex religion of the Jews that was based on all of this, these complexities and the law and so forth, that, that Jesus brought it down to, you know, love God and love your neighbor. That's, that's what religion is about. And, and, and Jefferson would have seen that as deism. Um, that's kind of different from what we think of as deism today. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we tend to go to the clockmaker God who's absent from human affairs. Um, that, that, you know, that was available to the founders, but I, d- I don't think it had a lot of traction really among, among the founders. If the idea was an attraction to sort of pure, simple, monotheistic religion, uh, that kind of deism, I think, did have a, a very broad appeal okay. um, among the founders. And some of the founders took that in a more traditional Christian direction. And then others like Franklin and, and Jefferson had a more skeptical view of traditional Christianity itself. Mm-hmm. Now, this discussion is not unrelated from the politics of his day. Uh, think, for example, not just of deism and, and that whole debate, but, but even with atheism. On the one hand, Jefferson uh, doesn't seem to classify himself as an atheist, but at the same time, he's not like some of the Calvinist ministers of his day. He's not uh, against or maybe hostile or aggressive towards atheism either. In fact, there are some of his letters in which he uh, is even giving advice to say, if that's where reason leads you, you should uh, investigate it, explore it. consider whether this is true or not. I mean, there's two levels here, right? Uh, What does this mean as a window into Jefferson's own mind, his own religious consciousness? (laughs) But then what does this mean in terms, this is the second level, what does this mean politically in terms of some of the turmoil that Jefferson finds himself in, even with the elections and uh, some of his own competition with some of the other fathers? Yeah. I, I think that Jefferson uh, is definitely not an atheist. Um, and, and there's almost no atheists, maybe no atheists in, in America until, you know, maybe the early 1800s in, in the sense that we understand atheism of, of having a principled position that there is no God. Um, Jefferson, I think, is just too much of a sort of we might say a kind of pre-Darwinian monotheist uh, who believes in a created order. I mean, I I think his belief in a created order is very, very deep and and I I think almost unquestioned. I mean, Jefferson raises questions about all kinds of things, but one thing I don't ever see him seriously questioning is the idea that we live in a created order. Yeah. Um, and that's why when he says all men are created equal, I think I think he totally means it. Yeah. And it's also totally conventional. Yeah. Um, he's not asserting something that would have been controversial in 1776. Where this issue about Jefferson and atheism comes up is is really uh, that in, in notes on the state of Virginia in particular, he makes a couple of comments, mostly sort of speculative comments that seemed to be attacking some very basic principles in, in the Bible. Um, he questions the historicity of Noah's flood. He, as part of the, the discussion about African-American racial identity, he questions whether whites and blacks might have been created at different times and places. So uh, obviously 
questioning the the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2. So when Jefferson becomes a serious contender for the presidency, starting in 1796, but then especially in 1800, when he runs against the sitting president, John Adams, and ultimately defeats him, his Federalist opponents charge him with being an atheist. Mm. Um, and, and what they mean by that is not necessarily that he denies the existence of God, but that he lives as if there is no God. And he's willing to say things that only an atheist would say, like what he said in notes. Um, and, and, you know, we sort of wring our hands about how nasty politics is today. And it, and it is nasty, but the 1800 presidential election is just brutal. And so the Federalists charge him again and again and again with being an atheist. And we, they say, we, we cannot have someone like this. Now, why do it, they think in their minds, why do they think that would be so detrimental and have significant consequences for just the future as they see it. Yeah. I mean, they, they think that uh, America cannot survive, a republic cannot survive without Christian morality. Yeah. Um, so, and it, and it touches at the very heart of things like the legal system. I, you, you can't have an atheist swear to tell the truth because they're accountable to no one. Um, and, and so uh, you can't have an atheist serve in public office because they don't think they're accountable to God. Um, and, and so they, they see theism and Christianity in particular as essential to the, the ability to sustain a thriving, flourishing republic. Um, and, and, but it's also political. I mean, they're trying to get John Adams elected. And so they say, you know, vote for the theist and not for the atheist. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's just kind of nasty politics. And you can imagine things like that happening today, yeah. really. Oh, sure. Um, and, and so um, Jefferson, I think, is really stung by those criticisms. Um, I don't think he likes the idea of his, his, his wife had died in the 1780s, but his daughters, he, I think he worries some about what his daughters think about him personally. And, uh, and then in 1802, the, the news breaks about his relationship with Sally Hemings. Um, and, and that's right around the same time that he kind of comes to this Christian settlement. Um, and, and so Jefferson at that point becomes, I think, more eager to assert, not that just he believes in a created order, but that he actually was a Christian. And I, I think his insistence about that becomes more uh, vocal and, and, and common after about 1802. And even his supporters, right? I mean, at this point, the politics are, I mean, like you mentioned, it, it, is, it is getting heated. But even his own supporters seem to come to his defense at points and say things like, well, Jefferson, uh, he is a rational Christian. Um, does that, a, do, you, do you interpret that as aligning, aligning with Jefferson's own perception of himself as, no, I'm coming to the Bible and I am actually bringing out the true Christianity that is buried within it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there there probably is more of a, a an ability to to appreciate sort of contrast between different sorts of Christian conviction at the time. I mean, just most people involved in politics in eighteen hundred are more theologically sophisticated than Americans would be today. And so, when you see Jefferson um, in the uh, in his first inaugural address commending Christianity, he, he doesn't use the word Christianity, but he says our benign religion. And, and, and then he talks all about its public ethical effects. 
I think what he's saying it, when he talks about you know rational Christianity or or his defenders talk about rational Christianity, he's saying, look, uh, you know, don't worry about my doctrinal convictions about the nature of God. I've got Jesus's ethics, and that's what we really need in public life. Mm. For me as a Christian, that's a deeply unsatisfying. But in a public political sense, I I see what he's getting at yeah. that if uh, people were able to manifest Jesus's ethical teachings in American public life consistently. It would be great for the republic. I mean, I mean, you know, no matter what reasons you're doing it for, I just happen to think that that is is ultimately a a, a flawed and failing version of Christianity and totally unsatisfactory. Yeah. yeah. Now this brings us into some deeper waters, and I suppose as we you know turn the corner here to try to conclude things. Uh, it's not just that Jefferson is looking at someone like Christ or Christianity and saying, okay, it's virtue, uh, it's understanding of virtue or it's ethic at large is what he wants to see then uh, applied to society. But it also is a certain understanding of liberty. And this is also fascinating because uh, just, you know, for example, Jefferson, on the one hand, uh, we see a certain anti-Calvinism in some of his rhetoric. And yet, at the same time, Jefferson uh, does not hesitate. You think of the Calvinist uh, Sydney, uh, where Jefferson is actually looking and I, I, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tommy, but could we even say adopting it in some sense, Sydney's biblical argument uh, against monarchy or, or ultimately what they will call tyranny. This is uh, politically very convenient and helpful given Jefferson's context. So I suppose that raises the, not just the issue of ethic and virtue, but liberty itself, which Jefferson is very concerned about, um, given how volatile uh, things are in his own day. What is the intersection for Jefferson between his understanding of Christianity, and even, uh, you even mentioned this, not just with Jefferson, but with Franklin, even their interaction with, say, Reformed Christianity. Uh, what is the intersection between that and their heavy emphasis on everything from, say, um, an argument against tyranny to the free exercise of religion uh, to even what they will call the liberty of conscience? And Gary, I imagine this is going to intersect with even some of your own interest as well. Yeah, well, I'll take a swipe at it first, and then maybe Gary can talk about it. When Jefferson is talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, historians know that he's modifying John Locke, who said that, you know, the function of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. Um, and and I, I think pursuit of happiness is, is, is a more elegant, you know, less kind of blunt way to, to put it uh, than, than property. But I tend to think that for, for Jefferson, in the declaration, he's, it's a political document. It's supposed to be a unifying document among the patriots to encourage them to defend the patriot cause and, and see it as a, as a righteous um, movement that's, that's worth a, a lot of sacrifice for. Um, but, but those are, I, I think, maybe two sides of the same coin. 
liberty and the pursuit of happiness that that on one hand, I think the founders believe that liberty is the freedom to do what you were meant to do, what you're designed to do. Okay, so it's it's not just kind of radical individualism yeah. about, you know, just do whatever you feel like doing, yeah. which is sort of the ultimate American ethic today. Um, but liberty is is the freedom to live the way God is designed for you to live. And that's, the, the you know, the best life of all. And, and liberty, by the way, has, I think, more of a public kind of reference, is a more of a public-facing kind of you know, the, the idea of being able to live to be a, a blessing to your neighbors and to serve the public good and th- those kind of things. Where pursuit of happiness, I do think, has more of a private kind of reference that you, you have the ability to kind of live under your own vine and fig tree, as it, as it were, which is a, you know, Washington loves that that phrase and the idea of having uh, the ability to create a sort of private, you know, undisturbed world uh, where you can uh, enjoy your family and whatever material blessings you have and enjoy that mm-hmm. kind of, and, and there is a kind of Epicurean yeah. and it's not so much luxury, although in Jefferson's case, it turns into luxury, but it's, it's just a peaceful enjoyment of the good things in life. And that's a little more private kind of kind of ideal, um, and and I think that to connect it to religious liberty, you know, when when he talked about to his nephew uh, Peter Carr about, you know, if you end up by your reasoning about these matters becoming an atheist, then so be it. I think what he's talking about is the ideal of government, wherever it can, just leaving you alone to live a life of, of, of liberty and pursuit of happiness. And pursuit of happiness for Jefferson includes being able to develop your own religious convictions according to your conscience between you and God, and then live in accord with that. And if that leads you to be an atheist, so be it. Um, I think Jefferson would say it would not be good to have a society teeming with atheists, but but you know he's okay with some people reaching that conclusion, and he especially doesn't want government coercing people to have to feign belief and, and, and so forth. Or he, he's okay if people end up becoming, you know, evangelical Christians, even though he's not one of those. But, <laughs> but if that's what your conscience leads you to do, you should be left alone, um, not persecuted. And this leads him to this sort of wonderful alliance that he has with many Baptists, uh, for religious liberty, not because they're on the same page theologically, but because the Baptists had been badly persecuted yeah. in the colonial revolutionary periods by the, the, the colonial governments. Um, and he's, he thinks we should just be left alone on religious issues to, to live according to our conscience. And that, that's, I think, a, a really essential part of what pursuit of happiness means to Jefferson. Mm. I just find his his uh, love of liberty to be fascinating, and 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 even aspects of liberty that might make uh, give us pause as Christians and and make us uncomfortable. Certainly, his he's fighting for political liberty for America, um, liberty of conscience for um, religious liberty and religious freedom. That being one of his hallmark le- legacy uh, contributions, the Virginia Statute for religious liberty. But then. Also lending his support to the French Revolution and its call for liberty, which might, might uh, certainly gave a lot of the Federalists in his day and 
and uh, a, a number of us pause uh, even today. Um, but for him, this this attachment to liberty and all these different facets um, is really when I think of his political philosophy, one of the centers of his thought that it takes on different manifestations in different contexts. But the, um, the love of liberty certainly uh, leaves its mark on the American character and in ways that probably would give us, uh, you know, uh, some, some pause as we do want to think through that from a from very much a Christian perspective. Not sure he is consistent in that as he gives lends support to the French Revolution, you know, later on in its cry for equality, liberty, and fraternity. But, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, a figure on that, on that study. As we close, Tommy, I'm going to give you the last word here. And uh, on this topic, I, I find it so uh, interesting that Jefferson at one point will quote from Matthew sixteen eighteen, um, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Jefferson is quoting Matthew's gospel, and, and Jesus himself, actually, uh, for a certain reason, uh, right? He is appealing to Jesus to say, well, uh, if Jesus is not, it, it's such a strategic point, if Jesus is not um, going to recruit coercion uh, by the authorities that be to somehow, um, as you say, Tommy, bolster religion. Um, well, Jefferson thinks, well, here then is uh, a justification for or, or against a state-supported religion. So that brings up, I mean, this is certainly uh, a very complicated issue in our own day, and maybe there's ways that Jefferson could only have dreamed about or maybe could not have anticipated this, this discussion going in the 20th century and the 21st century. But in Jefferson's day, how does he, how does he conceptualize state, um, church, and, and why is he uh, against a state-supported religion? Why would he see that as actually quite uh, threatening? And ultimately, Tommy, I mean, how does that, what, what does this teach us? You know, what can we draw from this today as we not just reflect on Jefferson himself, but uh, try to understand what it means to be a Christian um, under the state in which we live in the 21st century? Well, as Gary said, I mean, I, I think that his contribution to the tradition of religious liberty is probably the most unalloyed good that came out of Jefferson's, you know, specific, the specifics of his political career and, and thought. Um, and he, especially from a Baptist perspective, um, there is a great deal to admire and celebrate there about uh, Jefferson's alliance with uh, evangelical dissenters, who, as I said before, had experienced terrible persecution, um, including from the government of Virginia, on the eve of the revolution, I mean, there were dozens of Baptist pastors being put in jail uh, in the early 1770s in, in Virginia. And Jefferson and Madison are watching this going on, and, and they think, well, we don't, we don't agree with these Baptists. Yeah. You know, they're crazy. They won't baptize infants and stuff. <laughs> but, but, uh, but they should not be persecuted for you know, teaching 
what they what they see as a, their version of biblical Christianity. Um, and Jefferson, I think, knows that a government that will persecute people like these evangelicals will will come after people like him next. Yeah. Um, and so he thinks, and Madison thinks that the the best way to handle this issue is to have the government be. Of course, you know, broadly supportive of kind of the interests of religion. I mean, they, they couldn't imagine the government being sort of hostile to the general interests of, <laughs> of religion. Uh, but that you want to get the government out of the business of promoting one particular denomination and its doctrines. Um, and, and I think we forget just how utterly common and conventional that notion was at the time of the founding that, of course, you have a state church. Uh, England has a state church. In fact, England still has a state church today, whatever good that's done for them. Um, and, and so you're coming into 1776 with that being the dominant assumption. But Madison and Jefferson and especially Baptists argue that Christianity will do better if you get just get it free from state entanglement. And, and there's a suspicion there about the corrupting effect of political power, which I think is a warranted suspicion, um, that the government tends to corrupt things like the church so that you don't want the government running like a denomination. I mean, that's just horrible. It's, it's bound to become corrupt and bureaucratic. If you want pure Christianity, um, then you get the government out of the business of, of calling balls and strikes on doctrine um, you know, sending the sheriff after Baptist preachers for illegal preaching and, and so forth, and just try to maximize religious freedom. Um, and so it, that's, that's encapsulated. I mean, Jefferson's not involved in the Constitutional Convention, but he, he praises the, the First Amendment in the, the Wall of Separation letter in 1802. But they get cite, cited every time now that there's a religious liberty case before yeah. the Supreme Court. Um, but he praises appropriately the First Amendment because it, it maximizes free exercise of religion while at the same time saying we will not have a national, uh, they call it an establishment of religion. But what they meant by that is a national official tax-supported denomination. Yeah. And uh, to me, that wonderful and genius combination has a lot to do with why America has been uh, a distinctly Christian um, in terms of the number of churches and the, you know, the level of Christian commitment um, in the centuries following, especially as compared to England, which in the 20th century went through, you know, just cataclysmic Christian decline so that, you know, very, very few people will go to church in England on any given Sunday uh, today as, as compared to uh, the United States. We've been talking to Tommy Kidd, uh, research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, author of many books, including Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. And Gary Stewart has joined us, uh, professor of history at Colorado Christian University, author of Justifying Revolution, the American Clergy's Argument for Political Resistance. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, uh, be sure to... uh, Read some of the scholarship of both of these historians. I think you will find uh, not only Tommy Kidd's book on Jefferson to be a window into uh, the past, into the founding uh, era of uh, the country we know, but you also find it to be uh, enlightening in terms of revealing in a very honest and transparent way 
the complexity of a figure like Jefferson and so many others in his day, but also with the ready implications, as Tommy just told us about, ready implications for how we today, even in the 21st century, understand the relationship between the church and the state, or how we even should define Christianity itself. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.